1: And welcome to Smart Money Simplified with your host, Brent Mikosh. Brent, good to be with you again. Fascinating lineup you've got for us.
2: Bill, it's always great seeing you. And I got to tell you today, I'm I'm really excited about this conversation for a couple of reasons. First, full disclosure, uh, one of our guests, Paul Perry, happens to be my father-in-law. So it's a man that I love dearly, and I love <laughs> the work that he does. And I'm thrilled that I get to share it with my audience. And we're also joined by Raymond <laughs> Moody. Now, what we're going to talk about today is basically this. In my financial world, in my business world, I've got a real privilege to walk alongside people as they determine, you know, what it is they're trying to accomplish in their life, what their values, what their goals are, in many cases, what comes next. But there's a couple of questions I definitely can't answer. You know, one is where are we from? And the next one is where are we going? Right. And between between those two questions. There may not be two guys around today that have spent more time focused on this than uh, than Raymond and Paul, and uh, they've done I think five New York Times bestsellers together. They've they've sold millions of books. They're both viewed uh, Raymond in his in his medical career, and of course my father in law Paul as a writer are preeminent in their field. Really discussing. Uh, what happens after we die? And so, I guess we'll we'll kind of start with that. And it's a, it's a big question to ask, and maybe a little too big a question to start a podcast with. But both you guys, thank you so much for joining me. And and of I guess course. I'll put it to to you, Raymond. Where do we start with this question?
3: Well, you know where I started was I was not religious as a kid. I'm still I'm not. I was I was an astronomy buff, so I went to the University of Virginia at age eighteen to study astronomy. And the idea of an afterlife was to me a premise of a co- comic. I, I had no idea anybody took it seriously, but I, I took a philosophy course, and I my first day, and just literally the first few days of my philosophy course, reading pa- Plato's Republic, I got hooked on philosophy because it begins with Socrates, who's then about twenty years old. He's walking down to the port city, and on the way down, he, he meets a, a man who's probably 60, 70, 80, and Socrates knows him, and he stops, and Socrates says, you know, Kephalos, I'm um, young now, but I, you know, I may get how, you know, the age you are, and what, how does life look from the stance of somebody your age? And Kephalos says, well, Socrates, I've been very successful in my life. I, I inherited quite a bit of money, but I've added to it and I've done very well in my business. And I've spent my life focusing on my business affairs. And he said, but, you know, just in the last couple of years, he said, it's like my mind starts going back to these stories about the afterlife that i heard when I was a kid, and is there anything like that? And he said, and I developed a sense of urgency about it. Now the dialogue goes on for another couple of hundred or 180 pages, and then it comes to an end in this incredible scene about a warrior named Ur who was believed dead on the battlefield, but revived during his funeral. And he came back, set up on the funeral pyre, and he told his, his, um, the people around that he had gotten out of his body, he went through a passageway into another world, and he saw all these things. And so I was curious about that, and Plato obviously took it seriously. He thought that this was an indicator of an afterlife. I talked to my professor, Professor Hammond about it, he said, yeah, these early Greek philosophers knew of cases that were ble- people who were believed dead and had these experiences. Flash forward about two and a half years, I met Dr. George Ritchie, who was a professor of psychiatry at the University of Virginia, who had had such an experience when he was a young man. As I continued to study this as an undergraduate, I became a philosophy professor and heard about this from my philosophy students and my colleagues, went to medical school, or cases even in patients I've treated myself. And so that was the process, Brett, whereby I came to this uh, process where, I mean, I can you logically say as a logical inference that there's an afterlife? Not yet, but I think that the reason is more in the limitation logic than in the limitation of these experiences and um, where i've come on it is that i just have to give up I, I can't think my way out of this i just it appears to me that what this adds up to is that these uh, people are telling us about the afterlife it's not the oxygen deprivation to the brain that's what you hear the the difficulty with that is that the bystanders who are not ill or injured at the death of someone else. Well, very commonly report these same things we hear from people with near-death experiences. They get out of their bodies, they rise upward, they into a tunnel, they see a comforting light, they see their life in review, they are met by departed relatives and friends. And then they come back to their lot, to their bodies. And you know, this is a very transformative experience on people, as we know now. Not from my just from my work published in 75, from, from a host of other physicians now who've investigated
2: this. You, you bring up a really excellent point in terms of people that not the person that's actually dying, that not that near death experience, but that shared death experience. And before we go into one of the reasons I'm thrilled that you're both taking the time to have this conversation today is you've got a new book that's been out for now less than two weeks It is proof of life after life. Seven Reasons to Believe that There is an Afterlife, and it's really focused on proof outside of just a subjective experience that the person that had that near-death experience had, people around them that in a variety of different ways shared in this process. But before we dive into into the book and some of the things that, that you've learned through this book, which I've read pretty much all of them that you have, this one's, I think, really definitive in terms of bringing, aggregating all the work that you've done together. Paul, how did you get in touch with Raymond initially? Because- it's interesting. This is kind of there's been stories about this going back to Plato, as you mentioned, uh, doctor. But now you're but now we're kind of coming back into this after what seems like a long hiatus, not talking about these kind of experiences.
4: Yeah. Well, 33 years ago, I knew nothing of Raymond Moody and and nothing of near death experiences. I was editing in New York a major health magazine called American Health. And I was approached by my book agent, who is also Raymond's book agent, but I didn't know him at the time. And he said, would you like to help Raymond Moody write a book on all the research that's taken place since he wrote his groundbreaking Life After Life? And I said, I, I don't know who Raymond Moody is. And he said, well, he's he's the guy who named and defined the near-death experience. I said, I don't know what that is. And And Nat, our agent, said, don't you watch Oprah? <laughs> you know he's, he's on Oprah all the time. They talk about it a lot. And so I decided to go ahead and work on this book with Raymond. And uh, Raymond was living in, in Georgia at the time. I went down, I thought it was going to be the only book I would ever write on it, that I would learn everything I could about the subject, uh, do the best job I could on the book. And Raymond and I just uh, took a real liking to each other. And Raymond is a wonderful teacher. So it didn't matter how dumb the question was, he would answer it and take it seriously. And after writing that book, I started to see places where there wasn't research. I started to see vacuums, if you will, in in the research. So I talked to Raymond. One of them was about children and near-death experiences. And I asked Raymond, is anyone doing uh, research on children and NDEs? And he said, "Yeah, there's a pediatrician in Seattle that's starting research on it, a guy named Melvin Morse." I wrote I wrote a book proposal, and uh, we sent it out for closer, closer to the light. Sent it out to 20 book publishers, 19 of them rejected it, and one picked it up, and that was Diane Reverend, who uh, was at the time the an editor of Random House. And I was sitting there reading all my rejection letters while I spoke to her on the phone, and she said, "You know, if you re- handle this book right, it's going to be an enormous bestseller." And uh, I said, "Oh, great! You know, I had my doubts because I was reading the rejections, and <laughs> there's a lesson in all that because we went ahead and did the book. It ended up on April on Oprah three times, yeah, and you know became became a massive bestseller and really launched my career because then I started looking at every book I would write and look for the vacuum, look for the, the empty spot. And, uh, and that's what I've done now for uh, 15 books. I've it's made crazy. it a point to always write a book with the exception of one book with a, a medical doctor or with someone who's a research researcher because I want the books to be solid medical advice, solid right. medical evidence.
2: And I think that, that that's what makes your books unique is, again, you are looking at through somewhat of a clinical eye. And I guess, Raymond, for those of us that that uh, maybe are not in the NDE or near-death experience world, what what is this? What are we talking about on a fundamental level?
3: Basically, what we now know, I wrote about this in 1975. It was published. And at that time, this was not known to the public. But basically, since the advent of cardiopulmonary resuscitation by the 60s that experience that plato described which was very rare has now become very common so i gathered all these stories my initial group was about 150 people that i had interviewed and what i found was a remarkable similarity in these stories and it's dependent not Independent of what people's religion might have been, or 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 what cause they have almost died from, or their educational background, all these different things, the people had the same experience. And basically, not everybody had the same details. It was about the fifteen common elements. See, and and uh, one person have may have four or five or six of these, one person may have nine or ten, and rare cases where the person was in these extremely lengthy cardiac arrests that don't make medical sense, I acknowledge. Like my friend who was pronounced dead for 40 minutes. And the doctor told me, I mean, he said it's just the most amazing thing you'd ever seen. And so in those cases, it can be, you know, all these 15 things. But the kinds of things people say are that they often they often hear the doctor or nurse or somebody else say, oh, my God, he's dead or we've lost her or words to that effect. But, uh, but I, I, one comment I've heard all over the world, Brent, from people is the, con- the, the common theme of this is I have never i have never been so alive as when i heard that doctor say i was dead because people say that suddenly there is a total whirl around of the world and they say it's like you are you you find yourself out of your body up above this scene and watching the resuscitation from above and the, these people generally say it's not that they hear what the doctors or nurses are saying, but they become aware of what the doctors and nurses are thinking. Hmm. But the, when they try to communicate by in turn, they try to say, "How? what is this? How can I, nobody seems to be able to see them or hear them. They say that at some point they become aware of this passageway. They may call it a tunnel or hallway or whatever, but they go down this tunnelway and come out in the other side into incredibly brilliant and warm and loving light. People say that, you know, no matter what experience of love you've had on this life is in this is hardly comparable. This is just amazing. And in that light, they say that relatives or friends of yours have already passed away are there to welcome you into into this. At a certain point, everything else kind of disappears and say that time stands still early in this. And they say at some point they are surrounded by a panorama which consists of every single detail of their lives displayed around them. And they say that in this panorama, You see each detail of your life, but you see it not just from the perspective you had when you did each action, but rather you feel it empathically from the perspective of the person with whom you've interacted. So if you see yourself doing a mean-spirited thing, then you feel the sadness on the other person's part, or if you see yourself doing something good to something and then you feel the good things but this is and all over in an instant and people say that it's like an eternity but actually that no turn no time passes but you see everything and often they say that in the in the process of this they are in the presence of a, what they call a being of light like a personal being who knows sees this review with them knows everything about and sort of is in a helping position of helping them to understand this. It's not like a judgmental thing; it's like a discussion of uh, of this and and this this being, some say Christ, some say God, some say an angel, some just say a being of light, but this complete compassion and discusses your life the paths you took and so on and um so, what, and I have, you know, I've chased knowledge all my life. I had two doctoral degrees plus three <laughs> years of teaching in a, uni, in a university before I was 31. And everybody my age now can know there was something terribly wrong with a person like that, right? And there was, you know, I was chased. Some people chase money, chase, some people chase fame, some people, what power? You know, my chasing was knowledge. And um, what, but whatever they were chasing, people who go through this experience of having their whole life reviewed say that what comes out of this is that the what this is all about is learning to love. It's to say that that's what it's all about. It's like the people say that they're not words, but it's as though that the question comes, not in words, but the question is something like, how have you learned to love? And that's what this review is all all about. Also, incidentally, people have told me for decades, people say that in scenes in which they had been learning something, that this being would kind of zero in on that and the thought would come. As I've heard from many people, that's interesting that you're learning this. And the, the follow-up thought is that this process is will not stop when you die. And my friend George Ritchie, who was the first living person I heard this from, said uh, he's, he is from what he saw, he said that the process of learning, he said, I gather, goes on, he said, quite literally for eternity. And so that's what people experience. How did they get back? Some people say, "I have no idea." One moment I was in this light, next moment I was back in on the hospital bed. Uh, others say that they were told they have to go back. It's not your time yet. Like somebody says, "You got to go back. You haven't finished something." So they sent back. Yet others are given a choice, and they say that, and it, they say that uh, they were said they the person there there with them says, well, you can either stay in this experience you're having or go back to the life you've been leading. Hmm. And obviously all the ones I've taught were chose to go back. But what is so interesting about this is almost every one of them is the same reason, which I understand very well. Say not for me, but I have children left to raise." is the typical thing they say. Or sometimes it's to go back to help somebody else. <clears throat> Paul, and question. these things powerfully express, you know, these, these, these experiences powerfully change people. Yeah.
2: And that was my next question to, to you, Paul, because I know you've done a lot of research for, with multiple different physicians that have, that have had these kind of uh, experiences or, or worked with people that have had these experiences. You know, what you're both describing to me sounds like a Christmas carol, you know, okay. where Scrooge is, is seeing almost the, the potential outcome based on the decisions he's making today and i can't well, you've imagine well you got it
4: backwards though the christmas carol came from these <laughs> well yeah, yeah there you go
2: <laughs> exactly so i mean what kind of transform what kind of transformations have you seen with people having navigated this world for decades now after having these experiences well there's
4: an enormous transformation we did a uh, a study i was involved in a study that melvin morse did called the transformation study and we looked at hundreds of people who had had near-death experiences to see how the experience had transformed them from a very early age. So some of the people were children. and now in the course of this study, they're in their 40s and 50s. Uh, or we would, you know, study people who were later along in life. And what we found is that they, is that people who have NDEs have a, a higher zest for living. In other words, they're more, they're like, they're type A without the anger. They have, they have a higher intelligence. <clears throat> and I think that's related to their, their uh, sudden interest. Their interests have opened up primarily through a near-death experience. Uh, they have, and they have a greater appreciation for learning. On a more paranormal angle, they have an in, an increase in psychic abilities, which means that people who have near-death experiences have four times the number of verifiable psychic experiences as people who have not had near-death experiences.
3: And How a very
2: verifiable- compared to empathy, what what would a psychic experience be versus empathy? Cause you've been through something traumatic. You you're feeling things in a deeper level, but what do you mean by psychic experiences?
4: Oh, well, I, they're verifiable psychic experiences. So it would be, it would be ones that we could definitely prove. So, as an extreme one, it would be someone who had a dream at night and uh, uh, that they were going to the plane they were going to take the next day was going to crash. They get up, they tell their spouse or someone else that, hey, I'm not going to fly because I had this dream that the plane crashed. And then it does. I mean, that's definitely a verifiable psychic experiences. And it's at the extreme end. There's others that are, you know, in the middle as well. So they're different from empathy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we made sure that they were different from empathy.
2: And in terms of, do, you, do they come out, for lack of sounding, I guess, simplistic, do they come out generally as better people?
3: Yeah. Yeah, I can make a comment on that, having known some of these people literally for decades. Right. And that is, Brent, It's that one thing they say is, my dear friend George Richard, who was the finest person I ever knew, one day stopped by my house urgently to tell me. He said, the, it took me years to see the point of the message, but he said, Raymond, this experience makes your humanity even more of a burden in a way. Hmm. Now, George said things very kind of, but I've heard this same sentiment expressed many, by many other people. In various words, so let me, you know, trim it down to a few words, which is that, let's face it, it's very difficult to get through the average day without wanting to choke at least one person. (laughs) And that is the reality, isn't it, for most of us. And so what people say is, yeah, I still have that. Right? I still fly off the handle I still but that what but what this vision or the realization of seeing everything you've done kind of from the other person's perspective it does definitely temper that and George told me that and George used to wake up George would wake up at four o'clock in the morning every morning to pray and meditate before he would go and see his psychiatry patients. Hmm. And uh, and I've known other people like that who have gone on these extraordinary spiritual disciplines and so on, which is still required. Uh, The great uh, William James, who studied the psychology of spiritual experiences, said that he had noticed there were two main ways to get on the spiritual path, he said. Some, he said, it's like, overnight like you have a mystical experience like saint somebody or like zoom one night in this overnight but he said for most of us it's more like this right like ups and downs and and what i since i had already known that observation by william james when i first started out researching this it 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 is you know what i've observed over the years that is that people with near-death experience, it's a combination of those two things. That on the one hand, they have the Zoom, they're there. And that forever after, there's a kind of longing or nostalgia for that place that I hear from these people. But at the same time, you come back, and it's a process of learning here how to do that.
2: Yeah. Well, let me ask you both this, because a skeptic may say, Okay. As, as you mentioned uh, b- before, yeah. uh, Raymond, that oxygen deprivation, it's yeah. a very subjective experience. Now, Paul, you talked about verifiable psychic experiences, which is a little bit different. But what right. I think is so fascinating about your current book is that you're diving into this idea of a shared death experience, because now you're getting somebody that isn't physically massively compromised enough to potentially be dead, that is, sh- that is participating in this death experience almost so so what what is again tell us about the shared experience what that even is
4: for for 30 years we we worked together on on books and projects about near-death experiences and one conclusion we came to is that a a near-death experience is largely a subjective experience that that one person has it and they're really the only person that can convey what it was like to have this and to explain the the effects of it But then we started to to collect stories that we called shared death experiences, which is when a a living person who is well shares the death experience of someone who is dying. And that intrigued us mostly because it's it's an objective experience. Mm -hmm. You know, it's being uh, uh, had by more than one person, sometimes quite a few people at the same time. And. And that is a shared death experience, and it it leads us more to the proof that consciousness has left the body, and consciousness can survive outside of the body.
3: Yeah, Which and happens. all of all of these things that we think of as the near death experience, like getting out of the body, ascending toward a light, and seeing apparitions of the dying person, and um, are part also of these shared death experiences, like people at the bedside say, as grandma died, I'm a, I got out of my body and I went upward with her part way toward this light. People say, I saw the apparition of Aunt Ruth come into the room as my grandma was dying or, or um, the, the room fills with light. And most remarkably to me, and this is something that I must say is the most troubling thing I know, in, in all my studies of that is that it happens regularly enough that you can find cases of this, that the bystander at the death of someone else empathically co-lives the dying life review wow. of the person who passes away. And to me, this is shocking and number one, a little bit scary because I've, I've tried to figure out some way to recuse myself from my own life review much less the idea there would be a, a spectator there, right? But but it's astonishing. And for years, I thought, well, this has to be somebody very intimate with the person who's dying, right? I mean, I, but then some years ago, my wife and I got got a communication from an ER doctor who was called to the ER to resuscitate a patient he had never laid eyes on. And he, as this guy was dying, but man's life review sprang up around them. I've even had one lady, this lady from Canada, whose father was, a grandfather was a, a farmer. And as he was dying, unbeknownst to her in, in the hospital, she saw his scenes of his life in review as he was dying, As she later found out. So this is some hard stuff to put together. But, but I think it's very important for the big questions you were asking earlier, Brent. What are we? Where did we come from here? Or what is this all about that we're going through?
2: Well, one question I would have for, for both of you as well is I think that, you know, my father, for example, who's 84 years old, describes when he was a young kid, you know, maybe five, six years old, when his grandparents died, they they would die at home, you know, and we've really medicalized both birth. You know how babies are generally born in hospitals now, at least in the West and death. And so it's it's not surprising to me that a lot of the physicians that you have both interviewed and worked with are the people and the nurses that are on the front lines of seeing this stuff. But do you think that the fact that this is maybe a little bit of, an, of a of a side question, the fact that we've medicalized living and dying, you know, birth and living and dying. I, I think it's caused an enormous amount of fear about the whole process of life and death. Would you guys share that based on your studies? Oh, I
4: think that's very true. I make a, a kind of a, a, example of it would be, I was speaking to a friend of mine, who's, <clears throat> whose father had died. She was, she's Mormon. And her father died in in uh, Utah and she went back for the funeral. And at the funeral were all of her aunts and they were sitting around talking about other people in the family who had died and how they had had shared death experiences at the at their bedside. And they had taken care of them. And they cared for them at home. That's all gone now. For the most part. And it does. I think it does create
3: fear. In a lot of ways. Yeah, I do. I'm just, you know, it's uh, the, the attitudes of societies toward death is something that's largely beyond my control. Perhaps. Yeah. For good reason you know that i'm not sure i'd know how to figure it out myself but i i do know the system we have you know is has this deficits compared to what i know of the times when people died at home and that was that people had these experiences that the sea of the things that are now just sound nonsense to talk about but which were common Knowledge back at 150 years ago that as people die, they, they light up. They, they, if they've been obtunded for weeks, they suddenly are just like they were before, but better. And, and they shine with a light. I know it sounds crazy, but you ask anybody in hospitals who's worked with the terminal Ill for a long time. Yeah, it yeah, happens. And uh, what is that all about? Or people who sing as they are dying. Mm-hmm. Two people in my own associ- limited association network sang they, their way out when they died. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and it's it's fairly common, and not as common as near death experiences, but common enough that you can study it.
2: Well, you're giving me a great segue into your your seven proofs. Your seven proofs is that there's a consciousness that exists um, beyond this life, and it's based on these shared death experiences. And so you touched on the first one, which is obviously people that are around the person that dying is, is sharing these out-of-body experiences and sharing perhaps they had a visitor of a loved one or the tunnel or the light. And the second reason you had is, is what you guys term as precognitive experiences. Will you talk about that a little bit?
4: yeah a precognitive experiences when uh, well, a, a good a good example would be if you're you're asleep one night and you wake up and there's someone we'll say a family member standing at the end of the bed and they say i'm I'm passing away. See you later. And they're yet they were never ill. No one expected them to die. And that is precognition is that you know that you know that something is going to happen before it happens. Uh, that's fairly common. You run into that quite a bit.
2: Now, are these happening at the, you know, you have a loved one that maybe is several miles away or thousands of miles away. Is it as they are passing, or is it something that we're talking about months in advance?
4: No, it appears to be uh, as they are passing. I mean, we, we found some uh, studies on the 19th century of uh, people who were in China and Their family members back in England, like in one case, two nieces back in England had a dream that their uncle had died in China. He wasn't ill. They didn't expect him to die. And then later they got communication from uh, the people he worked for in China that he indeed had died and he had died on that particular date that they had uh, uh, their dreams. So, yeah, it can happen all over the place. Yeah, and
3: Brent, you know, I think one thing that so many people learn as they grow older, my wife, for instance, is just beyond brilliant. I mean, it's like with an embarrassingly high IQ, okay? But she's totally non-intellectual, which is great for me. She studied art, okay? But I studied philosophy, and I was studying when I was 18 that, yeah, there's something fishy about the notion of time. But several years ago, Cheryl and I were standing in the living room, and I said, she looked very reflective, like she's looking far, far away. And she said, time is unreal. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, yeah, you know, and it's uh, if you get involved in the workaday world. But once you start reflecting, Aristotle said, what is time? He said, it's past, present and future. He said, but the past doesn't exist. The future doesn't exist. And try holding on to the present. So, you know, it's a very fishy thing. And I think that what comes to the fore with these people with near-death experiences is that they say, yeah, you know, this is time is an illusion. Our friend, Evan Alexander, who's a professor at Harvard of neurosurgery for 14 years and had a near-death experience. But I was asking Evan, I said, um, you know in the world we're in the two axes of orientation of time and space. But what people say about these near-death experiences is that it's not time or space. So I said to Eb- Evan, I said what are the orienting axes? And he said it's, um, it's love and knowledge. <laughs> which is just a wholly different orientation system.
2: No kidding, that's for sure. And you know what's what's
4: kind of amazing about this book, because we've talked about doctors a lot, is uh, the number of doctors that now talk about these experiences, whether they've happened to them or they've happened to their patients. So back years ago when I was writing my first book with Raymond, I was also writing a book on reversing heart disease with the cardiologists in Cleveland. And I was visiting him, and uh, he said, well, what else are you working on? I told him about the near-death experience book, and he shook his head and said, you know, I've resuscitated hundreds of people, and I've never, ever heard anyone talk about a near-death experience. Uh So he was called away from the nurse's station where we were talking, and the nurses came over, and they said, well, that's because he never talks to his patients. He never asks them questions. That's the big difference that that now... Uh, it's in, Raymond's work has put it into the lexicon.
2: Well, the uh, two of you must have been viewed as almost these fringe, I don't want to say fringe lunatics, but definitely the weird guys out there talking about this good, stuff good when it started. It pretty,
4: pretty good.
2: You know, Brent, it makes me sound like a hero to say,
3: oh, Dr. Moody was persecuted by the medical community <laughs> and all like that. But <clears throat> the reality is it never happened. That I had been studying this for ten years, and 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 talking about it as a philosophy professor, before I went to medical school, and my and I was from Georgia where I went to medical school. My had friends there. My the, my professors knew before I came in that this student was coming in in September who had studied these experiences. Within the first two weeks, Brent, eight of my professors had called and said, "Dr. Moody." Thank you for studying this. About half of them said, because it happened to me. And, and then others said, I've heard this from my patients. And, it, and then just a few months later, my, my wonderful psychiatry professor, she later became, became uh, told me that she was, had this experience of leaving her body and seeing from above. And, and, and she was trying unsuccessfully to resuscitate her mother. And she saw this passageway open. So, you know, this is this is something that is hard to put together in the common sense view of the world that we're all obliged to subscribe to because that's how it holds together.
4: But it really comes together when when well, when someone names and defines an experience, which Rand did with the near-death experience. So he names and defines it and it becomes a door that they can open and tell their story, you know, to, to people. Because up until that time, there was really no definition for it. Uh, and it wasn't recognized really by, by the medical establishment, but then it got out into the public. And now the, you know, people in the public patients would start to ask more questions of their doctors. The doctors start to acknowledge their own uh, experiences. And here we are now where doctors openly speak about it.
2: Yeah. But yeah. there's one topic that you discuss in the current book as well that to me is if for some reason this one's very comforting to me um terminal lucidity oh yeah will you guys talk about that and and what some of your experience yeah. has been in researching that
4: well terminal lucidity lucidity is defined as a flash of life that takes place shortly shortly before a person dies so an example would be that an example was i saw one one time uh before it was even named or defined my, my son my oldest son uh, broke his femur in a motorcycle accident and I was going to the hospital to see him every day one day I went to the hospital and they moved a man in who was uh, sort of in the end stages of dementia and he was in the the room across the hall from, from my son and a day or so later his family was visiting him he was out of bed he was literally standing on his bed uh, he was, seemed to be just perfectly fine. There were seven members of his family. he he spoke to each one of them about his life, about what uh, you know what was going to be theirs when he died, uh, about his business. and they were they were enthralled at the thought that he had been healed, that somehow his his dementia had reversed. And then the next day when I came to see my son, his bed was empty and he had passed away during the night. That's a common path in in terminal lucidity.
3: Yeah. And in the old days, Brent, the times that you were talking about, when people died at home for all the system got started. People were very aware of this and there was a common name for it. The name was F-E-Y, which is in the middle definition in the Oxford English Dictionary. But what it means is a heightened state of consciousness that portends imminent death and people just knew that even if somebody's been attended and out of touch for weeks, that they have this rally at the end sometime where the, and, and you know, the funny thing is, I've seen this because I, I dealt with the terminally ill. And anybody who's seen, you know, worked with the terminally ill a lot will tell you this, but that they will also acknowledge that it sounds so unbelievable. But this is what happens. People say it's like grandma has been inaccessible for weeks and everybody's just standing around waiting till she dies. And all of a sudden, grandma comes back to life. And yeah, there's a light, but it's not coming from the sun or from a light bulb. It's like this clarity to it. And, and they become almost like they're... Um, Enlightened, I mean, I don't know the, I don't know what word to use, but one of the common things you see, and it has happened in my case to my father and to my uncle, who died, also had this same thing that they go around and they give a message to everybody. Right. My uncle not only to his kids and wife who were there at the bedside, but to the, all of us, an individual
2: message. And, and the biblical you know, too, Old Testament the, talks about that. About the blessings of you know of the blessings of patriarch or matriarch when they when they depart, you know this is oh. it is something through history, right now. Well, let yeah. me ask you both: This is so you've been spending decades now doing this kind of research. How has this changed each of you personally and individually?
4: Take it away, boss, <laughs>
2: <laughs> Doctor Moody. What do you think? How has this changed well, your own personal worldview? <laughs>
3: I started life. I wanted to be an astronomer and a
2: comedian,
3: and uh, I the life. I know. The afterlife was totally unreal to me, and and now I've been through a process where I and not not with any religious background to bring to this or to, but have been just compelled by. Uh, a process to say I surrender. I, I realize as a professor of logic the difficulties of making a logical inference about this. But when some of my best friends who happen to be also medical doctors whose medical judgment I would trust 100% tell me that, you know, I imagine if I had some injury to my foot, heaven forbid, because I'm a addicted walker, Right and it, oh, my, to me it's so hard to think of hurting my foot. If I did, when I go to Anthony Chicoria, my my osteo uh, my my os- orthopedic surgery uh, professor at NYU, isn't it? orthopedic surgery at NYU, and who had a near death experience in 1994, who tells me, yeah, not only was it real, but it was more real than real. And, or then, and, or Evan Alexander, or any number of physicians I know personally, whose medical judgment I completely trust, unanimously tell me that what they experienced was not just real, but more real than this. And so, see, I'm, I just give up. I can't think my way out of it. So that's how I reached where I am including, for example, seeing my my friend um, Jeff O'Driscoll is an emergency room doctor. Okay, and Jeff was in the hospital, in the ER, when Jeff Olson, who was a uh, owner of a design uh, uh, design company, advertising, and Jeff Olson was in a horrible car crash in which his leg was just uh, amputated by the accident I gather in. He was having a his his wife was killed instantly. One of his children was killed. And as I recall, one survived. And so while this was he was taken to the hospital and while he was in the room surrounded by all these tubes, Jeff O'Driscoll went in and saw and talked with the dead wife of mm-hmm. Jeff Olson. And then as this developed, The nurse on the ward said, yeah, well, it happened to me too. So you see, at a certain point, this is just, uh, I don't know how to work my way out of these things, especially in an era where this is becoming almost common sense. And what you both will find, by the way, as you grow older, a greater and greater percentage of your friends your age have had some sort of experience of stepping over to some other reality so well, what i've come to see is this reality that we're in it's not as it seems this is paul, a very very complex story
2: so, that, yeah. that you, you were giving me kind of a segue in, in in the uh comment paul that you made when you guys recently did the interview with coast to coast and i'm going to paraphrase it here of course but there's this idea of the burden or the weight of life, but the fact that we are bombarded with millions upon millions and millions of bits of data. And maybe there is something about this experience. that strips all the rest of it away and you're getting to something closer to the essence. Uh, Do you think that's potentially what's occurring?
4: Yeah. And and there's actually some studies to back that up. There was a study that was uh, done in resuscitation magazine this last month. It just came out a couple of weeks ago where they spoke to uh, 50-some people who had had very deep cardiac arrests, which means they were essentially dead. They, they had deep cardiac arrest in that they, they had no more EKG and no EEG, no brain waves or heart waves. And uh, yet they came back after a period of time, some as long as two hours later. And they described what they felt like was just an... There were no breaks on their brains. How's that? Is that uh, many people think that there's a filter that keeps us from being exposed to all the input that we get in a day. You know, input just hits us like grains of sand, and we can't we can't experience it all. We can't examine it all. But they say that that goes away when they die. Mm-hmm. and and they then opened up to all kinds of things. The things they opened up to mirror a near-death experience uh they had out-of-body experiences they had uh uh they could see they could see all and know all which is what happens to people who have ndes as well and and they felt that that their brains had been their minds had been opened up and then
2: yeah yeah open, open up yeah, so opened up the so far yeah. greater than what we've got here
4: yeah that's what they're talking about though is not having a filter you know, yeah. which we have now. The filter makes us function better, but it also keeps a lot of information from us.
0: Interesting.
2: Well, guys, again, the book is Proof of Life Afterlife: uh, Seven Reasons to Believe There's an Afterlife. It's one of several books about near-death experiences, shared death experiences, a lot of this different information that, that the two of you have worked with together and that, Paul, that you've done with some other physicians as well. Heartily, heartily recommend it. Is there any other way that people that are getting very interested in this, or maybe you're listening to this conversation today, dealing with the loss of a loved one and are finding a lot of comfort in what you're saying. What would each of you suggest are good next steps to explore this and try to educate themselves on this topic?
3: Well, you know, I have my website is Mm lifeafterlife.com, and uh, I'm particularly open to talking with people about grief, that's one thing I do, I was, I lost my first child at the age of 36 hours in 1970 and so I know full well that feeling people have, you're never going to get over it, but it's a process so one of the things I've done in my practice as a psychiatrist a lot is grief therapy or other things and uh, and so uh, the way to get in touch with me is
2: lifeafterlife.com and Paul, how do people become more acquainted with a lot of the work that you've done, both with Dr. Moody and also with a lot of other professionals?
4: Uh, with It's paulperryproductions.com. That's my website. Or glimpsesofeternity.com. And that's a, a book site.
2: Well, guys, this has been awesome. And uh, again, I really thank you. I know you're on a v- very busy schedule of making a lot of different rounds, chatting with with a few people. And, and again, to our listeners, these guys have written books that have sold how many? Twenty million copies, I think, with <laughs> discussing these issues.
3: Okay, I think, I, just, I think, Paul. Oh, I heard recently that Life After Life has sold twenty million copies. Yeah. I've heard so just that, that book.
4: Long, just that book alone has sold twenty million. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So
2: I appreciate you carving time out of your day to, to to have a discussion with me, and my audience, and Bill about this. So thank you so much. And
3: thanks so much for the folks listening in. I really appreciate your yeah, yeah bliss,
4: thanks it thanks works. for bringing us on. Brie. It's a different audience for us, but it's a good audience
1: absolutely. It is a fascinating conversation. This podcast could go on for another hour or two hours actually it's <laughs> really it's really great uh, if, if you don't mind a couple of really quick observations, one, you've made me feel sane because I've argued for many, many years that time is an artifice that we've constructed we humans have constructed, and yeah. we're to deal with our with our top past, present, and future. And the other thing that strikes me in this conversation is that, it, that, especially in the shared near-death experiences or afterlife experiences, is the fact you cannot deny, as much as you may want to, we're all connected. Yeah.
4: Sure. No, There's definitely that. There's a lot of things you can't deny from these, and and uh, that's one of them. Uh that's I think it's really I've spent a lot of time just in meditation thinking about time mm-hmm. and it's uh drives me nuts <laughs> but, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean because you, you you keep saying well it doesn't exist but then but then it does and how does it exist for us is a different reality than how it exists for the universe
3: Immanuel yeah. Kant his his comment was that it's, it doesn't really exist external to us, that it's, it's part of the, our cognitive mechanism. It's like yeah. it's the basis of our experience. It's like the form of our experience of life, but yeah. not something that's external to us.
4: Right. Wow. But it's also preeminent in our culture. I mean, our whole lives are just,
3: in many ways, ruled by time.
2: No Uh, question. And increasingly so. There's no question. You
3: think about, go back to 1823. Yeah. 200 years ago. People were governed by the sky. Think about it. (laughs) Then, and just within a few decades, people started governing themselves by the clock.
4: Yeah.
3: And there is a, schism in our sleep process because of this if you go back to ancient writings you'll hear all this stuff about during the first awakening we did this or that and what's what a whole was,
2: interesting topic there that i think it, about often it is yeah
3: and as people would kind of go to sleep when the sun went down then about midnight they'd wake up they'd do something just read or talk, and then they go back to sleep. That's how people always did it until it clocks.
2: Yeah, and you, you figure that the technological advances that, that just in the last, you know, 50 years, let alone a couple hundred years that we've made, and you wonder, again, I think about that in terms of being around, you know, birth and, and life and sickness and dying. We've we've really isolated ourselves from both natural cycles. We live here in the desert in Arizona. It could be 120 degrees out. I'm 72 degrees and cool in my office Mm -hmm. around, uh, you know, being around our, our, our parents, because in many cases we're physically separated from a great deal of distance where we used to be all together. Communities are now increasingly what we're doing right now is virtual. And these tools are amazing, but I do wonder what what aspect of our humanity have we given up for this amazing, these amazing magic shows that we have that we get to engage sure. with every single day? And I don't know the it, answer to it that. It's interesting. It's a big thing. I mean,
3: where this is headed, nobody can tell, but it's just, it's so huge. I remember, Brent, probably before you were born, I, I was watching the television. This was about 1954 or something. And um, A long time before I was born, Dr. <laughs> okay. And my um, at my grandmother's house, I was watching the TV. This was in midday, and the two people you don't even know. One of them was named Arthur Godfrey, and the other one was named Gary Moore, and they were big television celebrities, right? And they were they, they both they, they, they their shows were all the time. And Gary Moore, I got a secret this the daily, the daily um, Godfrey show. And um, so one day is this the way they do it now? It's it's like, this was beginning that of course, Gary Moore one day was a guest on Arthur Godfrey's show. Yeah. And so, so Arthur and Gary Moore had his hair stood up. It was like a crew cut and stood up straight, but, As he was telling this story, his eyes were so huge that it accentuated that. It made him look like an (laughs) exclamation point. And he was telling this story about what had happened to him like a day or two before as he was telling it. He said he had gone down to the marina where he keeps his boat. And he said he saw a complete stranger walking on the deck of his boat. And he said, as he got up to this guy, the stranger jumped down, grabbed his hands. Gary, see you on TV all the time. I heard this was your bonus. And you know, Gary Moore was incomprehending. See, we understand that now so much better than he did. Because he was in the process, there was not, the power of TV was not evident yet. Right. right? Yeah. And it's, so it was so incomprehensible to him. Yeah. Now what? What is this this thing we're in now? What's going to do to us? See, is there's no way of telling.
2: And I don't, to... you know, I don't know. And i am, I know we're going a little over time, but I'm willing to continue the dialogue if you guys are. <laughs> I, I, I do have a question for you, in because I really, and this might be veering somewhat off topic here, but I've got this, you know, love hate thing with the technology and this sort of digital virtual world that we're in. I think it's it leverages things. It leverages your time. It, le- it can leverage relationships because the two with we're in four different places right now we're having this conversation Mm -hmm. but how do you think because i would say that you the two of you have quite a bit of insight into humanity and human living and dying through the work that you've done over several decades is there a way that you think that this world that we're moving into this increasingly virtual digital world is how do you think it's going to work out i know that's a loaded question and who knows but what are some of your thoughts on that
4: well, you know, for one thing, we can be instantly connected with anyone in the world and then instantly disconnected. So I, I think we're missing a lot by not dealing with each other personally. And, and you know, of course, we can't help but not deal with someone personally if they're in Iceland and we're here. But but there's a move, I think, to not deal with each other personally, mm-hmm. even if you're close. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I don't know. If, people rarely meet for lunch now but uh, that used to be the big social event i think people are now doing zoom calls which is a uh it's an interesting thing but it's extremely uh uh disconnected if you i
3: have yeah, i've all my life have been very good at extrapolating i'm not talking about you know fortune telling or psychic i'm talking about just figuring out where things are going. I mean, I've done it so many times, mm-hmm. but I just give, I mean, I'm at a state where oh. I can't, I can't figure out where this is headed. But mm-hmm. it, it mm-hmm. looks mm-hmm. to me mm-hmm. like it's mm-hmm. headed up towards some big event. And, but what that is, I cannot not even imagine. It's, mm-hmm. It seems like to me, there will be a crunch point where this thing we're in can't hold together anymore.
2: What well, do you mean? Expand to, on that.
3: Yeah, it's just too complex. Mm. I mean, I, um, you know, I see that I have two doctoral degrees, an MD and a PhD in philosophy, and I can't even. And have I read books all the time? I watch the news. I and I am totally incapable of figuring what's going on out. And so I think of all those people that we all grew up with who heard that thing about, well, you know, when you graduate from high school, you can get a job at the factory or the, you know, and, and then you can have your pension and that will all work. And, and imagine them trying to figure this out. If I can't, even begin to comprehend what this thing is then i feel so much sympathy for the people who because often people in that situation are kind of thinking well i can't figure it out but somebody can see but i'm in a situation where i realized that no i don't think anybody can
4: well part of the stress point is i think uh there's a large population that are pushing for the old way And there's a large population pulling for the new way, and and there's i think there's definite you know definite difference in the two visible difference the old way i mean look at uaw they're trying to go back to the old way Mm -hmm. you know with the pensions and and uh uh the mother company that kind of thing and then uh, other people are pressing forward the silicon valley people press forward to an increasingly digital world.
2: It's interesting. I think my, my big concern is one of the great books is uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And, and mm-hmm. what it comes down to is if you have a purpose and a reason for existing, and that that's can be right. different for everyone, that's a reason to get up in the morning. And I think the thing yeah. that, that concerns me most is that, Paul, you even talked about the UAW strike, which is happening right now. There used to be dignity in that man that went to work on the line and was building he could point to that car and say to his son hey i made that and he found purpose and meaning in that he did with his family he did with his with his faith belief whatever that might be and what i don't like happening in society we're getting way off topic but this idea that you're atomizing people you know you're basically taking people and you're breaking them down into these individual little things that fit into this widget and not really looking at them holistically in terms of how they can relate and how they can participate in the whole and i think that's that's where the real danger is. It's not, it's not, you look at, at our, at our country, they've obviously very divided economically, politically in a lot of different ways. But to me, the great divide is are you a, an atomized being that has no useful purpose is just here taking up oxygen doesn't have a purpose for living. Or are you here for a, for a reason? And I'm personally, I think it's, that's to, it's to learn and, and grow and have, and have an experience. If you ask me why I think we're here, that's kind of why I think we're here. But, um, but I think that's we're in a real dangerous world when you've got two vastly different trajectories like that
4: mm-hmm.
2: yeah One anyway guys okay <laughs> guys again I uh I kept you late I could continue this conversation for Jeez. a long long time yeah. and uh I'm lucky because Paul's you know my father-in-law so we can <laughs> we can continue this later on he only lives a few yeah. miles from me so it's good you and document these guys in
4: too. <laughs>
1: Yeah,
2: it's fascinating. And you know, Raymond, while you were
1: talking, and I'll use this as a way of wrapping it up. When you were talking about you're not sure what's coming, it reminded me of a poem by a, one of my favorite poets, which is William Butler Yeats, called "The Second Coming." And there's there, and I'm just going to quote a couple of lines in there really fast. Third line is "Things fall apart; the sinner yeah. cannot hold," and the second stanza says, "Surely." Some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is yeah. at hand. So on that note, yeah. I think we can we we can we can wrap this really fascinating uh, episode up. And where it takes us from here, I don't know. But Brent, thank you for putting this all together. Hey. For the people who've been listening to this and thinking uh, this Brent guy is kind of interesting, yeah. <laughs> i like to, I would like to have further contact with him. How do they get in touch with you?
2: Well, we do talk about a lot of other stuff as well. It's a little bit less esoteric than what we discussed here today. But uh yeah, our number here in the office is 602 255 555 Either Susan or Andy or Kayla, a member of my team, will will pick up or I'll or I'll pick up as well. But I, you know, I one of the things that I absolutely love about my business, and I do think that's a different discussion, obviously, than if you're doing succession planning or something in your business is yep. that all of this stuff that we're doing, it involves life and living and what you're trying to do with your time here. And I think that our discussion today obviously is a, is a, is a deep exploration of, of what happens after our time here, but I'd uh, love to have a conversation with anyone that just found the conversation we had here with Dr. Moody and with Paul and with you, Bill, interesting. And if you want just to keep expanding on that, I'm, ha- I'm happy to have that conversation as well.
1: That is fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to this podcast If you are not a subscriber, hit the subscribe button. Clearly, there's plenty of reason to subscribe to this podcast. And this way, you don't have to remember where you heard it or how you found it or when the next one comes out, because as a subscriber, you're automatically notified when Brent has a new edition of the podcast out. We also would ask that if you like it, rate it and share it with others and help spread the word about the podcast. On behalf of Brent and everybody at MP Advisors, Thank you very much for listening. And if nothing else from this episode today, remember this, don't wait, live your best life today.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, Member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.